We are so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. I want to begin uh, this installment of the series Beyond You with a rhetorical question. Please do not answer this, otherwise it may get embarrassing real quick. But I just want to know, without a show of hands or writing down or coming on forward or anything weird like that, I just want to know how many of you have had an experience where you may be told a mistruth or maybe told a lie, and it just kind of grew and spiraled from there and got bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Like, like maybe you've had the experience, right, where you've said something, little fib, nothing big, but then you've had to cover it up again and again and again, and you keep coming back, and you keep making up more stuff, and it gets bigger and bigger, and pretty soon this ride is going so fast and so hard, you want it to stop, you wonder when it's going to stop, and if you'll ever be able to get off from it. Again, please don't put your hands up. Don't, maybe that'd be something for the, for the ride home. It might be a good opportunity to share some of that. Um, I want to ask as well if, uh, if any of you have maybe had the experience where you've, you've put in something on a resume. And, and handed it in, and, and you've landed the job, you got the job, and you started at the job, and they actually expected you to do those things you said you could do on the resume. And real quick, real quick, you found out that you weren't quite as uh, proficient in that area as you maybe have led others to believe that you are. And so now you keep asking different people in the office for help or advice or consulting on something, and you're, and you're spending most of your days keeping track of spreadsheets with, uh, with names and dates on who you asked what questions so you can kind of hide your ignorance of like what the job entails and keep it to yourself. It spirals, it grows, it gets bigger and bigger, and you wonder if this ride is ever going to stop and when you can get off. I've had this experience before. Some of you have heard this story. I've told it before here from this stage, but it's too good to pass up and, and we keep growing. Some new people, you need to know this about me. I, I, I'm not a musical person. That's not relevant to the story. But, but in my school where I grew up, if you weren't a musical person, you took shop class. I don't know why. That's maybe just a little more insight about me and where I grew up, but that's the case. I was ninth grade. I was in shop class. And, and my final project was an exam packet where you choose a bunch of projects to do. And one of the projects that I decided to do was a welding project. And so here I am with my acetylene torch in hand, big leather gloves and oversized goggles, everything. And, and I'm like, I'm doing my welding. And I got my pattern. And you have to know that I'm bad at welding and that I'm slow at welding. And this is basically the last time I've ever done it for good reason. Listen in. I'm doing my little project and I'm under the gun, you know, for time, getting everything done. And I dropped a little welding rod on the ground. And so at that point, I pause, I hesitate, because I know what I'm supposed to do. I know that what I'm supposed to do is like shut everything down, take off my goggles and big floppy gloves, pick up the welding rod, the stick, and then like turn everything up, power it up, and get back to work. I know what I'm supposed to do, but what I decide to do instead is look to my left and look to my right, realize nobody else is here. It would be perfectly fine and safe to just like hold my torch up in the air and, and I'll save so much time by like reaching down and like grabbing that little welding rod, right? And, and like pick it up. Except I got these big floppy oversized leather gloves on and so I'm at this stool, you know, and I'm like trying to like pick something up and I, and I can't quite grab a hold of it. And by the time, by the time I stand up, my exam is literally, not figuratively, going up in flames. Although that was also a good metaphor for what was happening at the time too. But no, it's actually on fire. I had been dipping the torch in my, onto my exam. And, and I have, good thing I left those big leather gloves on, right? So now I'm like patting, out, patting down the exam to put out the fire. And I, and I lift it up. And I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating any bit when I say that there was a two or three inch hole torched right through the middle of it. 
And I know what I'm supposed to do. I know that what I'm supposed to do is bring that exam packet and all 20 or 30 pages of it to the teacher and say, I torched a hole through it. I know it was a mistake. I knew what I was supposed to do. But what I decided to do instead was to keep the ride going and, and go and like hide it in a corner somewhere where nobody else would find it. Put it in a bucket in a trash bin that almost nobody knows about and then go to my teacher and say, I lost my exam. I need another one. Which didn't really, kind of coming out of the mind of a ninth grader, 20 minutes into an exam, how did I lose my exam? I should have put two and two together. And he said, I don't have like another one for you. Just, you can't go find it. And so together, he and I, kind of like he was the Sherpa and I was the follower. And we just walked through the shop room until finally, not me, he found my exam tucked away in, a little, in that little trash bucket that I hid it in. And he held it up and he poked his finger through the middle of it because you can do that now. And he, and he, and he just, he didn't even say much. He just kind of like looked at me and I knew again what I should do. What I should do at this point and the only card left to play is to simply ask for forgiveness, right? Just go into full-on repentance mode, just weeping and gnashing of teeth, sackcloth and ashes, just beg like, I am so sorry. I knew what I should do, but instead... But instead, I blurt out the only thing that comes to mind is, who would steal my exam and torch a hole through it? <laughs> and that's how I failed my ninth grade shop exam <laughs> and the last time I ever welded. So the, the point is of the story, though, the, the point is at any moment, I could have stopped the ride. At any moment, I knew what I needed to do to push, to pump the brakes, to cool it down, and to get off. I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it because, because what people in recovery call, uh, I didn't want to do step four, which is take a, take a searching and fearless moral inventory of my life, and in particular that moment. Now, like I mentioned, this is, a, this is a step four. Some of you are in recovery or have been in recovery. Uh, you know what this comes from. It comes from the big book. Not talking about the Bible right now. The big book is, is a 12-step program, and this is step number four. By the way, just as a side, uh, if, if you've been through AA and ASA, whatever your anonymous is, and maybe there isn't one for you, uh, maybe there isn't an anonymous group gathering for you, if not, like, the church is yours. Because the longer you stick around here, I hope, I hope you start to realize, I hope you get that we are all in recovery from something. We just need to know what that thing is. So this morning, though, this morning, I want to look at all of those circumstances, all of those events. Maybe it's a lie or an exaggeration you told that blossomed. Maybe you also, crazily enough, have a welding story in your background that just kind of went sideways and out of control, and you want to stop the ride and get off. This is what it takes to do that. It takes a fearless Moral inventory or spiritual inventory of your life. And that is not always an easy thing to do. So let me sell it for you a little bit this morning. Because chances are you know of a group or you know of a person or you know of a movement that just started getting off the ground. When at the core of it, at the center of it, was a person or a group of people who didn't do the thing, who didn't take the opportunity to do a fearless moral inventory or spiritual inventory of their life. And eventually, you know it caught up with them or it caught up with her or it caught up with him. Now, some of you embarked on big projects. Maybe you took a job, and maybe something on the resume, whatever it is, but you didn't take that opportunity to do a fearless moral or spiritual inventory of your life, and it caught up with you. Some of you are looking back, and you know that, and you know that this was you when you got married, and you remember the time when you, when you knew what you should have done, but you missed the opportunity to take a moral, a fearless 
moral inventory of your life. And, and, and afterwards, it never was quite the same. It caught up with you. And so I want together, I want us as encounter church, or just wherever you come from, even if it's the first time here or hundredth time here, I, I, I want so badly for you to not miss that opportunity to take that fearless moral inventory because it could, it could change your life. This series that we're in is, is called Beyond You because we're, we're trying to figure out how to live a beyond you kind of life. And one of the steps, one of the steps in that process is to do just that, is to take that fearless moral inventory before we embark on the project that God lays in our hearts. And I gotta say, there are some incredible ones that I've been hearing about since we started this series. And I started this series kind of a big, bold declaration to say that I think God is actually gonna change the world through, through all of the projects and all of the, all the heartbreaks that God is doing in this community. And over the last couple of weeks since we started this series, I've been hearing some of those. So I heard a story earlier this week, remember the first installment of the series, we said, where is it that God is breaking your heart for where his own heart breaks? And somebody wrote an, wrote an email into the office and said, listen, if you'd have asked me a few months ago where my heartbreak is, I probably would have said something bland and generic like education. But, but, but now, lately, if you ask me where my passion is or where my heartbreak is, 11 faces come to mind. Because I work in a special ed classroom and I have 11 students that have been almost, almost ignored by basically the whole world. And there are so few people in their lives who actually care about them and, and want to see them flourish and thrive. And by God's grace, I am one of those people and my heart breaks for those 11 people. Listen, listen. God may not all of a sudden fix and change everything in the world overnight through this series at one church in one city. But I guarantee you that those 11 lives are going to be changed. Those 11 worlds are going to change by, by what one person brings into that classroom. It is such an incredible story. Another one that somebody shared with me is, is a heartbreak story about how, about how there's so many people that go through the motions and go through the habits of, of what it looks like on the outside of a spiritual life. And her heart just breaks knowing that there's going to be some people who go to meet Jesus someday. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say, yeah but I never knew you. And she says, my heart breaks for that. And God is changing. If not the whole world, all at once, God is changing individual worlds of people through the experiences of this series. But this morning, we're going to take a look at the Nehemiah story, and we're going to see this fearless inventory played out firsthand. If you have a Bible with you, or maybe use the one under the chairs in front of you, we're going to flip to the book of Nehemiah. I want to do some setup before we get it there, though. If uh, you have a chance to look up the Bible app, the words are going to also be on the screen behind me. Remember, Nehemiah, we kicked off this series a couple of weeks ago and we said, Nehemiah is a guy, he's a cupbearer to the king, which essentially means that he's, uh, he's kind of the right-hand man of the king. He doesn't have a lot of logistical, administrative um, savvy or control over things. He, he's more like the food taster to make sure food's not poisoned before handing it to the king. But he has a huge amount of influence with the king. And so his heart broke for the people of Israel. Remember, 150 years ago, they were taken off into exile. 70 years ago, a number of them got to go back. And then a few months before this story breaks out, um, he asks somebody, how's it going back in Jerusalem? And he gets the answer, uh, not so well, friend. Things aren't going so well. And his heart just breaks, and he knows that God is going to ask him to do something. Last week, we heard about the passion and the plan 
of Nehemiah when he brings the passion and plan, God's passion, God's plan before the king in Persia and presents it to him. And we ended it with the king granted his request. So Nehemiah is now employing his uh, administrative and organizational savvy for the first time maybe in his entire life. And, And he spent five months now, five months gathering the materials, cutting down the timber of the royal forest, getting his letters of safe passage together, getting an army together so that he can, he can have an armed escort to, to prevent any kind of danger for coming along with him. And he spends five months getting everything all set to go. And he makes a journey about a thousand miles in total. And he's coming through the desert and he can kind of see on the horizon, the silhouette of Jerusalem there in the distance. And he sees it, and we know from, from the previous chapter in the Bible, Nehemiah 1, we know that when he saw, when he heard reports of, the, of what Jerusalem was like, it brought him to tears. And now he is actually there. He's seeing it right over the horizon as he, as he enters into the city. I just imagine he's in full-on tears mode, right? No, you're crying, he's saying to the armed escort with him, right? He, he's coming in, and he's just maybe so overwhelmed with the emotion of actually being there after the better part of a year, having his heart broken and planning and preparing and bringing his passion for this moment to finally start. And this is what happens as soon as he gets to the city of Jerusalem. It starts off in verse 11. I went to Jerusalem. And after staying there for three days, I sat down during the night. I set out during the night with a few others. Now that's the part that just kind of gets me, right? It's after, after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. Now, some of you around here know me. I'm sorry. Others of you have yet to know me. Just brace yourself. And you know, you know that when, when like, I have a conversation with people, I can't, if I have something that gets me excited and passionate, I can't keep it to myself for three minutes, let alone three days. Right? Nehemiah is convinced that God has put this thing on his heart to do. And he's got all the materials and everything all lined up. And he gets to Jerusalem and he sits there for three days. And then when he goes out, he only goes out with a few others. And he only goes out at night. Like, I don't get this. Because most of the time when I have a great idea and I start sharing it with everybody three minutes later, I find out that the great idea is actually a bad idea for many of you who tell me, Dirk, that's a terrible idea. You need to go back to the drawing board on that one. Thank you for that, by the way. Spared me a ton of heartache and a lot of wasted time. But not Nehemiah. You see, what Nehemiah is doing, and I love this part of the story, what Nehemiah is doing, he's setting out and he's thinking about it. He's gathering information before he actually gets to work. And it's just, think about Jerusalem at this point, if you could. Now, Jerusalem, we think about it today, and there's this huge, bustling metropolis of a city. Back then, especially in, in that moment, it, listen, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. Remember, it's this bombed out, post-apocalyptic kind of town that the bad things are happening there. And that's what brought him to his knees. That's what made him weep of how bad Jerusalem was. This is not a huge, bustling city. This is more like a small town. Some of you have grown up in small towns and you know how it goes. You know how it goes when, when something happens in that town, when anything happens in that town, you know all about it. When, when all Mrs. Smith's grandkids are in town, like everybody knows the kids are in town, right? That's maybe why some of you moved away from that small town into a mid-sized city and welcome. We're so glad that you're here. But, uh, but besides that, listen, think about that small town that you grew up in. 
Think about how everybody knew every else's, everyone else's business all the time. And then just imagine, within that context, in that small town, a whole caravan of black SUVs with tinted out windows and federal agents get out of the vehicles. Well, like, do you think of that something that people would talk about? Right? In Jerusalem, when Nehemiah strolls up, by every account that we have, this is the first time a Persian official, remember, that's who they were under occupation with, this is the first time a Persian official has ever come and visited Jerusalem. On top of that, they come with a small army of people. On top of that, they come with enough timber to rebuild all the city gates of Jerusalem. On top of that, they have letters of safe passage and a direct letter from the king of Persia himself, who you would think have long forgotten about this little bombed out city of Jerusalem. And now Nehemiah is here, and you have to believe that everybody is asking questions. Who is this guy, and what is he here for? But instead, instead of talking about it, he goes out at night, and get this in the next line. Listen, listen. He goes, I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except for the one that I was riding on. Uh, mounts is a, he's talking about his animal. He goes, listen, there's, there's no other animals because I don't want people following the tracks of this, of a bunch of animals to see like what I'm up to. I want to be a little more discreet than that. We also kind of find out that he's on a donkey instead of a horse because horses bray and it draws attention. It, that, that's totally beside the point. He's not telling anybody why he's there. And everybody wants to know. Why did Nehemiah come? Who is this guy? Is he on our team or not? I don't know. And instead of telling everybody, he simply goes around town and listens. He just listens. And that, I think, is so utterly unthinkable for me. Somebody who, somebody who talks before listening, admittedly, there's somebody who, who likes to fire off their good ideas and waiting for other people to decide those are actually bad ideas and then walking it back. It's so incredibly odd for me to hear that, that for three days and then odd days after that, he's just walking around at night only on one animal with a few other people under the cover of darkness. He's checking things out. But I think that's one of the side points in the story that I just want to point out. That, that he walks before he talks. And I think that's so cool. I mean, I, think, I just imagine so much, so much heartache and so much collision, so much pain that, that is in this world because we share a vision with somebody, we share an idea or a passion with somebody, and somebody else just shoots that down and it stings. Or maybe you're the person who shoots things down and it stings and you know that it stings, but you decide it has to be said anyway and it kind of hurts. And I just, I want to invite you to like, imagine what it would be like if everybody, if everybody walked before they talked. I want to imagine if, if everybody investigated before they initiated, like before they started this great work, before they undertook this great project, they just pulled back and didn't make any assumptions and just listened. How much collision, how much hurt could be avoided by doing just that? However, and this is important, that's not the point of the story. Because the point of the story, again, as we heard last week, has nothing to do with actual city fortifications getting built. The point of the story is not about how one ancient city got rebuilt in an ancient world, only to be destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt countless times since. We know that 
because so many cities in so many parts of the world have been destroyed and have been rebuilt, and they don't get an entire book of the Bible devoted to them. So we know that this story is not just a strategic story about the best way to undertake a project or to build a wall, although walking before you talk is probably a good is a good thing to remember as you have a great project, but it isn't about the fortifications or the city. It's about something so much more than that. I want to read the next line, and I want, to, I, I, want to, I want you to hear what Nehemiah does next. And I want you to read the words, but if you could, I also want you to uh, absorb absorb the emotion behind them and, and maybe consider what Nehemiah was going through when he wrote these things. He goes, by night, verse 13, by night I went through the valley gate. Now, these are all capitalized. These are all actual places. I went through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate. You can snicker. That's okay. This is where they took their trash out. He went through these places, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. And I'll just kind of Oh, the reason for that is that the city of Jerusalem is like terraced with a bunch of buildings and homes on the side of a hill with like cuts out into it. And the wall was actually what gave it its structure and its support. When the wall was destroyed, it was an avalanche of stone and bricks that came crashing down on those homes and those businesses. Everything was destroyed. One of the things I love about the Nehemiah story is that it's corroborated by so much historical and archaeological evidence that we can also see that Nehemiah's new city, Nehemiah's new fortifications around Jerusalem, he just cut this off completely because it was unsalvageable. So, so the new Jerusalem that he was helping to rebuild is going to be much smaller than the old one because there was so little of it left that was, that was able to be saved. But he continues, he goes, so... In light of all this, I, I went up, I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I, I turned back and I re-entered the valley gate, the gate that he came out originally. He just kind of gives himself a tour of Jerusalem. Uh, keep in mind, nobody really thinks, we don't think that he's ever been here before, but we also know he took an interest of these places before. We know that he asked people questions about what it's like in Jerusalem. We know, we know that he cared deeply about the city of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem. So listen, I, I rattle off all of these statements, or I rattle off all of these like, uh, the names of places. You know, I say, I say things like, you got the Dung Gate, you got the Valley Gate, the Jackal Well, and the King's Pool, the Fountain Gate. There's probably not something like, like an image that pops to your mind. And like, oh yeah, that was the jackal well. That was, that was the fountain gate. There's probably not that image that comes to mind for you. But there was for them. He chose to include these in his personal memoir because they meant something to them. Because as he's going through and as he heads out past the king's pool and the fountain gate, he observes that this is completely unsalvageable. There's nothing left here. I need, to, I need to cut it off from the rest of the city. I'm sorry. This isn't going to be in the rebuild project. I, I want to invite you to consider you know, what it would be like to, to do this. Maybe, maybe you grew up in Grand Rapids. You spent a long time away. You, know, you come through it. Now you're the one writing the memoir, the memoir of a bombed out post-apocalyptic city. 
And you, and you, and you reference these, these particular points that, that maybe only people who knew this city would be a part of. And you say, you know, I drove by Calder Plaza. There's a rubble all through. I couldn't pass. I, I tried to take a stroll across the, the blue bridge, but structurally it was unsound. I could not make it there. Uh, I, I, I tried, you know, to look up at the S-curve of 131 downtown, just crumbled out, just nothing much left of it anymore. Like these places mean something to him. And he's like heartbroken as he recalls the state that Jerusalem is left in. You know, as he recalls these places, you know, I think the people, they had stories about them. You know, maybe it wasn't their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, but they're like, you know, at the, at the king's pool is where grandpa proposed to grandma, right? They haven't been there before, but it, it means something to them. And now he goes, it's rubble. There's nothing left. Listen, this is what's important about this message that I, I want to make sure that you understand. This is not a rebuilding project. This is not, this is not an exercise going out in, at night to figure out how he's going to, to, to re-fortify the city of Jerusalem. It isn't first and foremost about that. This is a spiritual exercise. This is an exercise that Nehemiah goes out and he goes, how did we get here? And I need to do the tough work of taking an inventory of exactly where we are and holding the rubble in my hands to understand just the devastation that we have caused. Remember two weeks ago, we kicked off this series by Nehemiah chapter one and, and Nehemiah had his broken heart lifted before God. Remember in chapter one, he prayed these words in chapter one, verse eight, where Nehemiah prays, he goes, remember, praying to God, remember the instruction, Lord, that you gave, you were the one to give this to your servant Moses so many years ago. And you said, God, you said that if we are faithful, if we are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And I just, I invite you to consider Nehemiah looking over the rubble that is the fountain gate and the king's pool and that other, that whole side of the town. And he holds the rubble in his hands, the broken bricks in his hands of the city that once stood so prominently. And he remembers and he recalls that God told them, God told us that if we are unfaithful, he will remove us from this place and scatter us to Babylon and to Persia and after and beyond after that. And we went back on our words. We were unfaithful, but God kept his. God kept his word. And he, in fact, scattered us all over to Babylon, to Persia, and farther places even beyond that. We went back on our words, but God didn't go back on his. You just imagine Nehemiah strolling around that city and seeing the devastation, you just imagine him. He's going not just to assess the building project that lies ahead. He's going there, I think, to take a fearless, moral, and spiritual inventory of his life, his ancestors' lives, and the reason why they got to that place in the first place. He's going and he's strolling around. He's going, I need to feel this. I need to experience this. I need to hold the devastation in my hands so that there will be a point when I have the opportunity where I know what I should do and I actually do it because may we never be in the same place that my ancestors 150 years ago once were.
May we not make the same mistakes as our past life would have made. May tomorrow be different than yesterday. May this upcoming week be different than last week because of the rubble, because of the destruction that I have seen, because I have seen how the ride gets going and it's painful and it's hard and I wonder if it's ever gonna stop. And one point it does and I get off. May I never get back on. May I never start that process, that spiral ever again. And it starts by doing the incredibly difficult work of of making a searching and fearless moral and spiritual inventory of your life. Like what's there that doesn't belong? Because the way to hedge off that entire process is to really get it all out. And to be honest with yourself, most importantly, is to be honest before God and say, these are the things in my life. This is the junk. This is the garbage that simply doesn't belong. And so if I'm going to be real with you, I want to say that that would be a great place to end because I could, I could send everybody out and I could say, hey, this is the deal. You know, as, as we leave this place or in just a few minutes as we celebrate communion together, consider Consider taking a spiritual inventory of your life. What's there that doesn't belong? And hand that over to God. But if I could, if I could make us feel a little uncomfortable this morning, if I could take that just one step further and to suggest that maybe, maybe there's a few ways we don't want to admit but there's a, there's a few things that, that are in our life that we just don't want to whisper even to ourselves, let alone God or anybody else. The reason why it's so critically important on that fourth step and what Nehemiah does around that city fortification, the reason why that's so important that the word fearless inventory of our lives, the word fearless is because the reason why we haven't done this before is that we are so afraid of what we're going to find. Because there's a good chance that in your alone time with God, when you are remarkably honest with yourselves and with him, and you ask God, what's here that doesn't belong? What he might point out to you is terrifying. Because you might find out something about yourself that's there. You might find out something like, something like, I don't, I don't really like whole groups of people. Like there's a whole class or there's a whole group or subset of people that I just, I don't really like and I don't really understand why. Maybe it's a past experience. Maybe it's something that's handed down from my parents or grandparents, but there's something there that doesn't belong. You might find when you get out of the car and you, and you see someone else's nice car in the parking lot, and maybe there's like a judgment in your mind that says, I don't need to get to know that person. I just know that I don't like rich people. I don't, they're, they're all greedy and they're all selfish and they're what's the pro problem in the world. Or maybe it's on the other side when somebody gets out of a vehicle, gets off the bus and you say to yourself, you know, I don't know what it is. I don't need to go up and talk to them, but I just, I don't like poor people. And maybe that's an experience that I've had or maybe it's passed on from somebody else. But I just, I don't like it. And Jesus, it doesn't belong in my life. Take that from me in this fearless spiritual inventory of my life. Take that away from me because it doesn't belong here. 
Or, or maybe you're looking at whole groups of people and saying, I can't really explain it, and I don't really know why, and I don't agree with it, but I don't really like black people, or white people, or Hispanic people. And I, and I know that that doesn't belong in a Jesus-centered kind of life where we look in love more and more like him all the time. So Jesus, take that away from me. It doesn't belong. Or, or maybe you're going through in a fearless inventory of your life. It, it might reveal something terrifying to you. Like, you know what I drink too much? Or you know what I lust too much? Or you know what? Fill in the blank because chances are there's something there that just doesn't belong. But the good news, but the good news of Jesus is that he says this in the next line. He goes, but if you return to me, verse nine, and obey my commandments, and even then, if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. If you are faithful, Jesus says, you always have a home here with me. If you take a fearless moral inventory, spiritual inventory of your life, I can tell you that you are safe with you. I can tell you that I can handle that. I can tell you that I'm good. I can tell you that I'm strong. I can tell you that we can fix this. And it starts with you being filled with my Holy Spirit. And, and we can clean this thing up together. I think Jesus is on the other side. And he's saying, and he's saying get it all out. Hand it all over. Because of this, because on the other side of your guilt, there is grace. Because on the other side of your sin, there is salvation. Because on the other side of all of your mountain of regrets, there is a story of redemption that has yet to be told. Hand it over to him. He's good for it. He can handle it. He is strong. But we never get there if we keep it to ourselves and we never admit it. We never get to that place and we always sort of like, like limp through life wondering why, why people make such a big deal out of this Jesus thing when all the while we've kept so much to ourselves that, that it, impedes, it impedes our trip and our travel with him. So hand it over to him. Redemption lies on the other side. After he walked, after he investigated, Nehemiah talked, Nehemiah instigated. And he said this, finishing out Nehemiah 2, he says in verse 18, he goes, I told, I also told them, he told everybody. Eventually he opened his mouth and he told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king of Persia said to me. And they replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. May you begin your good work this week. The tough journey so far, may it bring you to a point where as you head into this week, you know that God is behind you and you know that God is ahead of you. May you begin this good work and the first step in that process is by taking a fearless spiritual inventory of your life. For you to stand up, let's pray. Let's pray to the God of heaven together and then celebrate communion. Our gracious God, we accept your invitation this morning to, to be here and to accept, accept your encouragement, to accept your admonition or challenge. And God, we don't always know exactly what to do with all of this, but you're, you're putting things on our heart. You're putting maybe people on our, on our minds that are, that are coming up and we don't know what to do with it all. But God, may you break our hearts for those people and those stories. 
God, as we pray this week for you to make plain and visible inside of us something that simply doesn't belong, God, may, may you take that from us and, and put us on a path of, of restoration, of healing, and of redemption. God, there's so much brokenness and there's so much ugliness in this world. We know that you are good enough and you are strong enough to take that. And so we desire so badly for this week to be different than last, this year to be different than last. And we hand it over to you and say, God, this is, this is and has always been your good work. Carry it on to completion. In Jesus' name, amen.